loud, man. <laughs> oh, wait. Hang on, I can't hear you. Oh. Oh, wait, no, no. Let's start again. <laughs> wow, Dan. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dan, spring is here. The bluebells are out. My potatoes are in. Let's talk some goddamn ecology. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, do, do we have... Um, yeah, an amazing, amazing episode for everyone. We, let's just, I mean, you all know already, but we've just spoken to Jason W. Moore, author of Capitalism in the Web of Life um, and numerous other books. Um, and it was an incredibly stimulating conversation. I don't know how you felt about it. I, um, I was, I'm thrilled that we've um, just done it. I mean, I'm thrilled. This was like one of the podcast big heads, right? Like when we read Capitalism in the Web of Life, it kind of blew our minds. When we did our tier listing of all of our readings, this was right up there at the top. Um, kind of our introduction to dialectics. Um, and I think uh, it uh, tickled our fancy, so mm. to say. So this was like one of the most high energy interviews yeah. we've ever done. <laughs> Jason, what a what an awesome guy. Incredibly cool. Incredibly nice. Was very forthcoming with everything that we wanted to talk about um high energy from the first second went a bit scorched earth which we like too you know going in there talking about you know this person that person um but also an incredibly comradely guy and um i think we kind of we're, we're getting close to understanding what this whole dialectics thing is dan and, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i was i was um, very pleased that i managed to get a very convoluted way of asking what is a dialectic <laughs> uh, question in there and um yeah uh, I, th I thought it was a great answer um, we should have just started them off yeah. What is a dialectic? What is a dialectic? <laughs> I was thinking, I, sh I wanted to make the joke, like, we were going to have you on and not tell you that John Bellamy Foster was also here and not tell him <laughs> that you were coming and just have record the argument that happened. But one of these days, we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll why, get to why, that. why didn't we do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we value our lives, I think. Yes, um, okay, well, without further ado, you don't want to listen to us talk anymore. As you said, Dan, Absolutely incredible interview with the one and only Jason W. Moore, author of Capitalism in the Web of Life. Go and find him on Twitter. Uh, you'll you'll hear at the end where to contact him, where to get all his books. Incredible thinker, awesome person, very funny. Here we go. Okay, excellent. Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show. Dan and I, this has been something that we've wanted to do for a long time. We read your book, Capitalism in the Web of Life, as we just said, and um, kind of blew our minds. It's taken us, I think, still a little... A little while to kind of come around to the vein of thinking um, that's presented in, in it. But before we kind of get into the weeds and the nitty gritty of all of that, I was wondering if you could kind of go through your influences that um, your influences that influence the book, because obviously there's quite a bit going on there. There's obviously, you know, you obviously Marx is there, but there's quite a bit of radical feminist thought that's in there as well, um, as well as world systems theory. So maybe as we get started, if you could just go ahead and tell us how you kind of came to these conclusions and developed this way of thinking. Well, I think you're right uh, to pinpoint the dialectical imagination and capitalism in the web of life. For those who have uh, not encountered this book is an argument for thinking historically and dialectically. And those two moments entwine and shape each other in the best tradition at least in terms of my inspiration, the best tradition of a dialectical and historical Marxism, which goes to Marx and Engels, Lenin, Luxembourg, Lukács, uh, but also uh, fantastic uh, uh, dialectical biologists like Richard Lewinton and Richard Levins, the traditions of anti-imperialist thought, 
uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein, who I don't think is a world systems theorist, but that we can leave that for another part of the conversation, is definitely uh, uh, in the mode of Luxembourg Fanon and the, the anti-imperialist class critique of capitalism, which was fundamental to the book. The book was this call for a dialectical reimagination of the contradictions of capitalism and, to, and a plea to take seriously Marx's arguments about metabolism. So for Marx, capitalism doesn't have a metabolism. It is a metabolic process that the way that Marx introduces the question of labor activity as the conscious, sensuous life activity of the human species is through labor, labor in the web of life. He doesn't use the phrase web of life. He uses the phrase the metabolism, uh, the rest of nature, humans and the rest of nature. This is how Marx and Engels conceptualized historical materialism. Uh, apparently, most Marxists are not bothered to read the foundational statement of historical materialism <laughs> in the German ideology, where they begin it with the first conditions of history are, you, A, you have to have human beings who are actually alive and functioning. B, they are social. Their sociality, their social relations are determined and uh, determining of the web of life. So uh, they say right up there in the opening paragraphs, we have to consider uh, climate conditions, uh, geography and geology, but also the, the, what they say, the subsequent modification of the rest of nature, that's their phrase, in the making of history. And they call precisely for what they say. This is their phrase, a, a, a double character. It is natural and social simultaneously in the reproduction of human social relations in the reproduction of class societies. Not only that, and again, people have apparently ignored this. I use their phrase. This is Marx and Engels. It's a direct phrase, okay? So I'm not being a post-structuralist because I'm talking about the means of mental production. The means of mental production is their phrase, which is their way of talking about how intellectuals are consistently seduced by, again, their phrase, the illusions of their era. So think about Anthropocene, man and nature. Man and nature is not only an illusion of the capitalist era going back to 1492, it is the fucking ideological structure of the civilizing project from the very beginning <laughs> where the imperialists did what? They declared not just the flora and fauna, but the human beings in the newly conquered lands or the lands about to be conquered as savage as part of nature. Why? Because they didn't want to talk. They didn't want to pay for uh, their labor power. So this is a fundamental... A uh, call for a reimagining of the history of capitalism as always with and within the web of life, always producing webs of life and being produced by those webs of life. So as I like to say, volcanic activity happens, whether it's feudalism, capitalism, socialism, something else. And those conditions have to be integrated front and center into the, this geo-historical imagination, an imagination of what I call capitalism as a world ecology, not the ecology of the world, but a world ecology, a way of organizing the relations of power, profit, and life that's not just a laundry list. That is a dialectical um, set of formulations in which each transforms the other, that profit and power is shaping life and vice versa. Never equally, never symmetrically, always historical. And so one of the greatest 
I think tragedies of what I call the non-debates that have followed out of this book is that eco-socialists ignore historical materialism's call to be what? To be historical, to take this debate into the heart of what I would say is geohistory. That is the shifting mosaics of power, profit, and life historically to understand and debate what happened after 1492, after 1648, after pick your favorite date for the Industrial Revolution, 1784, 1830, whatever, to actually go into these debates. What's happened instead? Well, you've had all of these people who have gone to war over phrases. They have, this is, this is Marx and Engels' critique of uh, the German ideologists, that they are content to throw their revolutionary sounding phrases against other phrases. And this is exactly, this is the tragedy of people like Kohei Saito and Andreas Malm and John Bellamy Foster that uh, despite my pleas again and again and again over the past decade to engage in a geo-historical debate, they refuse to do this. And so they reduce Marxism to a series of phrases that is then at the end a um, left to people's sense of moral posturing and moral righteousness in any given moment instead of the hard-headed, sober, geohistorical assessment of major turning points in world history. And that's what we have to get to if we want to understand the present climate crisis. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense to me. And I, I think I'd, I'd like to expand on that a little bit because every now and then, Dan and I, we, we uh, live stream on YouTube and we read something and we talk about it with people who are there. And one of the things that I read recently was an interview with John Bellamy Foster talking about capitalism, the web of life, or just, I think, your work in general. And it really kind of surprised me how, because I, I do think that there is certainly something in the whole idea of the metabolic rift that is salvageable and that you can kind of, at the very least, maybe just talk to the regular person about, you know, inputs Absolutely. and outputs and soil and stuff like that. And it's, you know, it's, it's excellent scholarship. So I don't want to like throw them under the bus or anything, but I was really surprised about like how bad faith his, his, <laughs> his reading and others readings of your work tends to be, because one of the criticisms was like, oh, well, you know, more, he just uh, substitutes the word capitalism for the phrase capitalism and nature and nature and capitalism. And it's like, that that just seems like such bad faith. So I guess my question coming out of that is where where does this come from? Because there seems to be such a, such a reticence to the point of like <laughs> anger to engage with this mode of dialectical thinking. Where does that come from? Well, Foster is as has been sectarian for his entire intellectual life. And for, for folks who are curious about that, you can go back and look at his essay, Liberal Practicality in the American Left from the Socialist Register. An essay uh, whose basic argument I'm very sympathetic to, by the way, but it's, it's, it's quite sectarian. He's been like this for a very long time. He uh, comes out of a mold of sectarian Marxism that would rather be correct than to tease out the differences and common ground. I pled with him for many years uh, to uh, join with me to have a productive and generative debate where we would outline our areas of agreement, which are considerable, including over questions of metabolism, and uh, where we would also outline our areas of differences, and we would proceed to uh, develop an eco-socialist approach that understood um, the importance of generative differences. So this is what, you know, all these people posturing about eco-Leninism and climate Leninism. Let's remember, Lenin understood that if he was going to make a revolution, he needed to make that, make that revolution with revolutionaries, A, who did not agree with him, and non-revolutionary people who did not agree with the revolutionary program. That there would be a protracted 
uh, uh, line of march, as uh, Lenin liked to say. So, yeah, Bellamy Foster has just gone to war in the in the most scorched earth, dishonest and I think intellectually shallow and bankrupt way imaginable. Uh, this, despite the fact that, as uh, some folks of Web of Life will know, that I essentially credit Web of Life with flowing out of the work of Paul Burkett, Marx and Nature, which is a masterpiece, and Bellamy Foster's Marx's Ecology. Not only that, what drives me crazy is that people say, oh, you know, there's all this invective between the two. I'm sorry, there's been no invective on my part. Uh, that uh, there's there's a kind of um, outrage. But in fact, if you go and read what I write, I often and habitually, uh, as a matter of course, identify the contributions of Bellamy Foster's work, including around metabolism. Now, he violates his own dialectical procedures, as I've argued, in moving from Mark, his formulation of Marx's uh, concept of metabolism and the, con the class contradictions of metabolism uh, to, uh, uh, to then moving to operationalize it in a way that is essentially straight out of 1972 dependencia uh, thinking, which is, I'm sorry, not Marxist, uh, does not have a strong class critique. This is one of the really astounding things of the, the profound arrogance of people like Bellamy Foster in particular is to claim the mantle of orthodoxy when, hello, as everyone knows who has followed the history of Monthly Review, Monthly Review achieved its breakthroughs out of a heterodox, unconventional approach to Marxism. And in relation to me in particular, my uh, 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 my influence, you asked about my influence as well, certainly monthly review in anti-imperialist Marxism. I am uh, uh, in that lineage of Emmanuel Wallerstein, Giovanni Arrighi, Samir Amin, and this is an absolute tragedy. I've called many times for peace, for reconciliation, for Actually, what I see is a revolutionary uh, uh, approach to dealing with these generative differences, which is to outline the political differences and then to also identify the common ground, which is considerable. And, and Foster's modus operandi over the past decade has been to identify different analytical differences and complete them with differences of political principle. That is, if you are not in, a, in alignment with Foster's interpretation of Marx, you are a, a deviationist, a revisionist. You are not a true Marxist. And not only that, but Foster has come straight out and called me an enemy of socialism uh, many times. So, so this is, he's done so publicly. And so let's let's uh, uh, sort of see. This is at a certain point, it's a kind of Kafkaesque uh, theater of the absurd. Like, can we just have an actual dialogue? Now, let me contrast that to make a positive sounding note. There are other figures like Nancy Fraser, whose recent cannibal capitalism is magnificent and important, and there are generative differences between Fraser and I. We can have a productive and generative dialogue. There are many points of agreement. There are many points of disagreement. We see each other as comrades, and this is the kind of conversation that we need to have to open up and unthink the imaginary, the political imagination, including the Marxist imagination, to deal with the climate crisis. 
the sectarian politics that we see in different forms on the eco-socialist left has been absolutely corrosive, not just to the intellectual imagination, but to the kind of strategic internationalist thinking that is necessary to pursue climate justice in an eco-socialist way. Well, that's got to be the first time a Marxist has ever called somebody a revisionist for disagreeing with them. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> it's, shocked. It's never happened before. <laughs> I mean, and it's like these. the tragedy is it's seemingly, even though Foster, I know what for a fact was alive in, the, in this time, we, the, people have not gone back to learn lessons from, for, ex, for instance, the lessons of the new communist movement in the new 70s, in the 1970s, when this these arguments about revisionists and, of course, the... Uh, that was always something that you would hurl against political opponents, um, a real sort of hotbed of sectarianism, but also some very important lessons that I think could be drawn. Max Elbaum's book, Revolution in the Air, is a great uh, survey of uh, an assessment of what happened. Uh, there's this complete lack of reflexive and I think uh, um, sensibility, historical sensibility about the history of socialist politics and sectarianism and the, the destructive, destructive role that it's played in previous revolutionary moments. So as we head into another moment of revolutionary possibility, uh, these figures are responsible for uh, reproducing the worst kinds of sectarian uh, excesses at the moment when we most need to overcome those excesses and to have a way of dialoguing with each other that is comradely, that understands we're going to have differences, but also really seeks to build revolutionary alliances across those differences. Yeah, I, I think that's really well said. I think uh, my next question, I think I wonder if I might wind up pushing back a little bit on what you're saying about Marx, because I don't know necessarily if I'm as optimistic about his ecology. Now, I'll caveat this as saying that I haven't read everything Marx has written. I'm not a Marx academic. I'm not one of these people that could quote every single line of all of the volumes of Capital. But one thing that stood out to me recently is Dan and I read for the show um, a couple of months ago, George Comnenal's book on the French Revolution. And in it, he claims that Marx was wrong about the French Revolution and the social interpretation is incorrect. It wasn't capitalist, all of this stuff, blah, 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 but only because Marx was wrong about it, but only because he doesn't sufficiently apply his own ideas of dialectical materialism to that period of history. And he makes the point that he only really actually does that in a couple places in Capital, in the Grundrisse. I think that's actually pretty much all he cites. Um, and so I wonder if something similar is going on with Marx's ecology, because I recently, in preparation for this, I went back the bits in volume one where he talks about ecology and the bits that are always cited, specifically in the metabolic rift school, the stuff about, um, you know, the two page chapter on agriculture and industry and, you know, about why are we taking our sewage and not putting it back on the fields, that stuff. Um, and I wonder if that, to me, it feels like he's doing the same thing there that he did with the French Revolution, that he isn't necessarily applying his ideas of dialectical materialism sufficiently enough to ecology. And that could just be a roundabout way of saying Marx, you know, not being sufficiently dialectical or whatever. But I wonder if you see any elements of Cart like Cartesian thinking in Marx, if there's something that I'm missing, or if that's kind of why you felt the need to kind of develop on that thought and not just be a red thread, like, this is what Marx well, said, so that's what I think. I think... I think dialectics like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> I would agree. Uh, so I, I, my assessment of Commonell, who I think is a fine Marxist scholar, is that he's also a, a very formalist scholar, that which leads him to conclusions like, uh, you know, the French countryside, even, even after World War II, was not really capitalist. 
And then, uh, which is a classic formalist kind of statement, because you, you when you uh, define capitalism in terms of certain benchmark formal criteria, then you can see it as not there or there according to according to your assessment. Whereas a dialectical procedure will emphasize that of becoming, of becoming capitalist. And then you have to answer the qualitative question of, of how much is a lot, which is what every historian, Marxist, non-Marxist, um, neoclassical, uh, uh, everyone has to address at some point. How much is a lot? That's the big question of, of historical circumstances. This is what every revolutionary has to uh, answer for herself, himself, in this revolutionary moment. Is this really a moment where uh, uh, a new order is possible? And so let me share my approach to Marx. Unlike some people, and Bellamy Foster is one of those, he's a brilliant Marxologist. I think that that part of, part of that kind of Marxology is Marx can do no wrong. And I don't really care if Marx can do wrong or not, or what did Marx really mean when he wrote this in the spring of 1843. Um, now, those are interesting discussions. I'm not trying to make light of them. I think we can have actually very, very generative discussions in situating Marx within different historical moments to see how he was thinking and learn from him accordingly. But that's the point. Let's learn from Marx as a comrade. What I see, and I'm not a Marxologist either, but going through these questions over the years and revisiting Marx, the development of Marxist thought, I agree with Bellamy Foster from the swerve of the atom in Marx's uh, doctoral dissertation on Epicurus and Democritus and all of that fun stuff. We see a dialectical imagination in play. I don't see his Cartesian sensibility. In fact, uh, the, one of the key reasons I say this, and in an interview, I, I, I won't do chapter and verse because it would be boring, but let me just identify this, that Marx repeatedly, from the 1840s all the way through to the end of his life, is referring to labor as a specifically harnessed natural force. Uh, when some Marxists talk about a labor theory of value, they are apparently unaware that Marx was a critic of the labor theory of value. This is his point in criticizing the German socialists and the Gotha program of 1876. He criticizes them for saying labor is the source of all wealth. He says, no, labor is not the source of all wealth. Uh, that nature, too, is a source of all wealth. And oh, by the way, in the same, in the, in the, almost in the same breath, he says labor is itself a force of nature. Now, going back to your earlier question, Foster says when I say something like this that I'm flattening the difference, but of course the differences between extra human webs of life and human webs of life, that's an absolutely unsustainable and frankly lazy comment to make of my work, which is premised on a dialectical imagination of the unity of what? Of difference, of the distinctive character of human life activity. And so for Marx, what I see in Marx is... Uh, this sensibility that that the labor process is a metabolism. He introduces his discussion of the labor process, sort of important for Marx, as you can imagine. He introduces his discussion of labor, of the labor process for, for the geeks at home. That's 283 of the Vintage Penguin edition, where he says, what's going on in the labor process? Well, humans are a transforming some element of external nature, so external to the human body. They are transforming themselves as individual laborers, and they are transforming the relations of human and extra human labor. Now, they're setting that up, and if you put that into conversation with the discussions from the German ideology, you wind up with this sensibility. 
class societies are metabolisms. They transform webs of life. They are transformed by those webs of life. And yes, indeed, as I've said in practically everything I've written since Web of Life, uh, there are uh, essentially uncontrollable elements of the Web of Life. Volcanic activity, which is a big deal in human history, by the way, and a big deal in the history of capitalism, uh, is fundamental. But orbital variations of the Earth going around the sun, of solar variations, of maximum, solar maxima and minimum, of the wobble of, uh, of the Earth's... Uh, um, uh, 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 the, the, how the earth, uh, is, uh, uh, positioned, uh, uh, as it, as it goes around, as it orbits, it's also wobbling on its, uh, preset on its axis one way or another. There are other, there are many other dynamics. El Nino, uh, 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 movements are, for instance, sometimes triggered by volcanic activity, like with the Somalis, uh, um, volcano in 1257, in Indonesia, it seems likely that it triggered an end to what's called the medieval warm period or medieval climate anomaly. By the way, the metabolic rift folks don't want to talk about any of this actual history of climate or earth history. They just want to invoke it and then posture that they're the true materialists. And it seems to me that we could have a much more interesting and generative conversation if we really take seriously Marx's dialectical imagination, which doesn't say that everything ontologically is dialectical. That is, a volcano erupting is not a dialectical reality. However, how the question of how a gatherer-hunter mode of production or an agrarian empire or capitalism responds to the climate changes induced by that volcanic activity, that is a question of that, that dialectics can be applied to quite quite importantly. So I think, I think we, so that's an important distinction when we talk about dialectics between saying the web of life is dialectical and that we can understand humans and human social relations in the web of life dialectically. Go ahead. Sure. And I, I was just going to say that I think the opposite of that is Jared Diamond, right? It's guns, germs, and steel. It's just, that's right. oh, here's why the new world was conquered. It's because they had guns, germs, and steel. Why did they have guns, germs, and steel? Don't ask that question. But the left has abandoned the effort to counter Jared Diamond. Now, who knows? I mean, we can look at Graeber and Wingrove's The Dawn of Everything, which is a snippet of what it could be. And okay, yes, there's a communist tendency within humankind. I buy that argument. Uh, But they don't they don't attend to the questions of the web of life. It enters in a little bit here and there. But not not really like they're astute enough to understand that the Holocene change in climate allows, for instance, for cereal agriculture. But when we go back to these other figures, um, both Marxist figures that we've talked about, but also the so-called critical uh, uh, theory of the environment, nobody, there's the, a broad left has refused to offer an alternative to Jared Diamond's environmental determinism. And that's a real problem at a moment of climate crisis when we most need not a theory, not environmental determinism, but a uh, an approach to human history premised on geohistorical determinations. And then we begin begin to understand how, for instance, class societies respond very differently to particularly dramatic moments of climate crisis. And that seems to me an important archive of his geohistorical knowledge to draw upon. And yet both the critical PMC academic left and the socialist left refuses to go there. 
Yeah, I think that's going to be kind of one of our questions coming up too, is how how this does relate to class struggle. It's funny, it seems obvious when you put it like that, <laughs> you know, like dialectics is always touted as this big confusing thing, but it's a push and a pull and, you know, it's, yeah, I don't know. I'll, one more question for me, Dan, and then I'll kick it over to you. But the the last question that I had was actually a question that a listener of ours wanted us to ask. This is from Kat in our Discord. Shout out to Kat. They wanted to know your perspectives on class struggle in terms of left strategy um, and how these ideas can kind of be put into play to transcend capitalism. Because it would seem very clear that the situation that we're in now, that if we just wanted to do 1917 again it wouldn't work and the conditions are completely different than they are now and that serious questions need to be asked about what the working class is now and you know basically how can we expand the site of class struggle to meet our current situations so i'm wondering if you've or i guess they were wondering if you've had any thoughts on this this was something that was kind of in the back of my mind as well but how these ideas all relate to strategy and just about how politically useful they are, because I know that a lot of people will say, well, the metabolic rift stuff is, you know, and the mom stuff, it's a lot more easy to talk to your average Joe about. But I feel like that's a little bit demeaning, first of all. And secondly, you know, it's what you say in Capitalism and the Web of Life. It's like, if we take that for granted, then we'll shut down a coal power plant. But if we understand the relations that made them, we stop climate change for good, right? So I suppose I'm just wondering about the political implications of this thought. It's it's fantastic. Thank you, Kat, for such a great question. So let's begin with the um, sort of Marx 101 on class struggle. There's class struggle as ontological premise. So the, the history of all society is that of class struggle, that rift from, from the Communist Manifesto. So in that sense, the class struggle manifests in the totality of everyday life of the structures of power and production and reproduction within a given civilization or mode of production. So uh, for the genius of Marx, of course, was to analyze the contradictions of capital, uh, uh, for instance, between constant and variable capital as the economic expression of the class struggle. Right, that, that constant capital refers to the is is uh, 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 sort of metabolically and dialectically joined to the bourgeoisie and, and variable capitalists, of course, the proletariat, and that Marx and Engels understand bourgeoisification and proletarianization as tendencies, combined and uneven tendencies of uh, historical capitalism. Now, in that light, we need to examine historically, what are the conditions for successive class revolts? And that actually takes us onto the terrain of climate history. This is one of the ways that the eco-socialists that you mentioned do tremendous violence to their proselytizing, because what they should be pointing out, and they don't because they're anti-historical, is that moments of unfavorable climate change in the history of class society have often, not inevitably, but often been linked to political destabilization and popular revolt. Let's just take two great examples of this. One is in late antiquity with the crisis of, of the Roman West and the coming of the Dark Ages cold period. That period doesn't begin until 450, but in the century before, there was the worst uh, drought in the Eurasian steppe over the past 2,000 years. This was obviously linked to the movement of uh, Hunnic and Gothic and other so-called barbarian peoples into uh, uh, e first Eastern and then uh, eventually Western Europe, which was a fundamental moment in the crisis of the Roman West, which was one of the great 
greatest slaveholding societies in human history to that point. So when people say socialism or barbarism, I say, I'll take barbarism. Thank you very much. The barbarians brought an end to one of the greatest and most ruthless class societies in human history, the Western Roman Empire. And it wasn't just a story of barbarian invasion that brought it all down. There were peasant revolts from within. There was a crumbling agroecological uh, structure of production that was weakened by the climate shifts of the era. And what happened out of the collapse of Western Rome was an unprecedented golden age for a peasant mode of production in Central and Western Europe. It was quite extraordinary. They uh, occupy the villas and they reorganize life into village life, which had been largely abolished under Roman oligarchic hegemony. All right. So you look at the crisis of uh, feudal Europe in the 14th and 15th centuries. Again, the coming of the Little Ice Age, a long era of popular revolt. Indeed, one of the reasons why we get capitalism in the first place is because peasants and workers in Central and Western Europe defeated the seniorial classes in the countryside and made it impossible for them to restore feudalism. So there's a long history of unfavorable climate changes. This happens again in the 17th century, by the way, um, uh, 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 by the same token that you have the Fronde and the English Civil War. At the end of the, the English Civil War, Cromwell is sitting in London with a communist army full of levelers right outside of, of the city. So we want to be aware of just how intimately these eras of unfavorable climate crisis have destabilized ruling classes. And that's something completely absent from the eco-socialist imagination. And again, this is my plea. Let's have a dialogue. Let's identify uh, uh, places where we do have significant uh, generative agreements as well as disagreements. They absolutely refuse to do this. So in terms of left strategy, uh, of course, we need to return to internationalism. And this involves, uh, I think, a, an honest critique of what's happened to tropes of colonialism and settler colonialism, which have been totally emptied of radical critique. I've called it a woke clash of civilizationalism after Sam Huntington's famous clash of civilizations article at the end of the Cold War and, and then subsequently his book, uh, that, that the class character of imperialism and colonialism has been completely evacuated from the contemporary radical critique. So we need to understand that colonialism is how the bourgeoisie prefers to wage the class struggle. And we need to stop pretending that with a very, very few exceptions, maybe some groups in Amazonia, indigenous peoples are living in class societies. I, I mean, I've been to reservations on uh, in the United States. Those are class societies. So let's stop pretending that these are ecological Indians, which, by the way, is an old fashioned racist trope. Um, that's not that's this is not good, um, good for our strategy. So we need to put together internationalism. It does need to understand. And this is what I've argued in a long series of recent essays, that the climate crisis should not be regarded as an existential threat as imminent doom, it has to be regarded as a moment of political, economic, and cultural crisis that is driven by a trinity, and not an anthropogenic trinity made by humans, but a capitalogenic trinity. And from this, our, our uh, strategy follows. So I haven't forgotten about this question, that what, what we see are three capitalogenic drivers that are, in fact, one, a climate class divide, climate patriarchy, climate apartheid. 
these are not recent phenomena. These were, in fact, born during the, the most profound era of climate crisis in the history of capitalism, the long cold 17th century, between 1550 and 1700. This is not even a controversial claim, but because eco-socialists, along with the PMC critical theory left, for lack of a better term, have been have indulged in this flight from history, they have no interest in, in these questions, which is disabling our strategy. So our strategy of internationalism needs to flow through this trinity of the climate class divide, patriarchy, apartheid, and it needs to understand that the forms of work that, cap that, that capitalism mobilizes are only partially wage work or valorized work. In fact, capitalism is a system of unpaid work, of socially necessary unpaid work performed by, in the words of Maria Mies, the great Marxist sociologist, women, nature, and colonies. So for every proletariat, there is also a femitariat of unpaid human work and a bioterriot. We are all bioterians in a sense, a bioterriot of the unpaid work of the web of life as a whole. And the, the crucial strategic reorientation around this is to break decisively with the idea that there is a, a, an entity called nature that can simply be instrumentalized. That is a bourgeois imperial construct that goes all the way back to the 16th and 17th centuries. And let's realize that the, that's part of the thinking that created the climate crisis. And so many leftists are, have indulged in the thinking that created the crisis. They don't even realize what they're doing. I don't think it's, all, I don't think it's dishonest. I think they're simply unaware because that's how ideology functions. It makes us less aware of how we are embodying these structures of domination, exploitation, and uh, uh, power. I, that's a pretty fantastic answer. <laughs> um, yeah, th that's pretty, I could ask you a million other questions, but Dan, I'll, uh, I'll give you an opportunity because I know we have a lot to ask. Um, I suppose, jumping off from the idea of the instrumentalization of nature, I guess, I kind of wanted to pull back a little bit to um, the dialectic and your um, uh, use of dialectical thinking because J Jack and I sometimes joke that we're trying to be dialectical but we don't necessarily understand what that means and um, uh, and engaging with your work has been quite important in developing that for us um, and you sort of take through this criticism of like the criticism of Cartesian thinking and that holding their strict this strict dualism between nature and society or nature and capitalism um, and I sort of I, I, I accept that critique and then you sort of go to the next step of saying well generally um, environmentalists and environmentalist sort of kind of accepted that but it hasn't sort of stepped fully into the dialectical kind of thinking that you emphasize um and I sort of get hung up on that movement as well because in my mind what quite often happens is I want to make one of these things the sort of subject of what's going on and one of these things as the object you know nature is doing something to capitalism or to society or capitalism is doing something to nature um and you've sort of touched on some of this uh already but i sort of wanted to what i'm trying to build in my mind is quite a good metaphor or quite a good understanding of this dialectical structure um so i guess my question is kind of like what is the object subject relationship between let's say capital and nature right and is it one is the agent and sometimes the other is the agent or um what i'm sort of developing in my mind is this idea that stemming from the, a phrase you use quite a lot the flow of flows right um whether below all of these binaries, there's actually a whole series of like lower level recursion interactions. Would that be a good metaphor for thinking about? Let me try to, there are so many ways to cut into this. So Dan, just follow up with whatever I don't 
answer. But one of the, the ideas that I tried to introduce in capitalism and the web of life is the oikos, which is the, the uh, multi-layered, generative, creative pulse of life making. And notice the first word I use, multi-layered. So there's no basic unit. This is what the history of science tells us, that at first we're going to, well, the atom is the basic unit. Oh, wait, now we have um, the subatomic particles. They're the basic unit. Oh, well, now we have uh, pulsars and, and quantum physics. And we understand that not that everything is random, but that, that the search for basic units, and this is straight out of Levin's and Lee Winton's uh, path-breaking work, is one of discovering webs of relations rather than building blocks. And as you can imagine from the very metaphor of building blocks, it is an eminently capitalist uh, metaphor. So what I wanted to do there was to introduce some concept of the pulse of life-making within which we are all entrained and captured. And in that sense, it's, it's absolutely a philosophical intervention. Its intention, however, speaks directly to the questions you raise, which is, uh, well, if it's not dualism, then what do we, where do we go? Do we go to holism? But in holism, the whole is everything. In dualism, the parts are everything. Dialectics seeks to understand particular geohistorical sequences uh, uh, through a, a situated analysis. So it's not a theory of everything. In fact, it's a critique of the theory of everything. It's a critique of universalism. And yet it doesn't shy away from understanding that, for instance, capitalism exists world historically or it doesn't exist. And that's that explains quite a bit about the the transformations of everyday life, including the everyday life of extra human natures. So that in this, in this sensibility, yes, sub, uh, this is a core hallmark of dialectical thinking that in any story you tell subject and object can be, are interchangeable, not, not in a cookie cutter simplistic way, but like in the example I, I gave uh, earlier in our conversation, volcanic activity. Now from, if you wanted to tell uh, uh, the story of human civilization, from the standpoint of volcanic activity, you could, it would be fascinating, and you, you could have a very kind of, a very interesting kind of subject-object history. Now, this language of Cartesian dualism is often misunderstood. And the first thing we want to say is that Descartes himself encapsulates or crystallizes tendencies within capitalism's means of mental production, Marx and Engels phrases, within capitalist thought over the previous century, uh, the history of the civilizing project, but also, as, as I've argued, the proletarianization, uh, the development of manufacturing, the development of sugar plantations, uh, that kind of industrialization in the mines and the fields, as well as in workshops, um, that Descartes brings together not just a philosophy of, of essence between mind and body, but of thinking things and extended things. And if I say that enough, it might sink in. Thinking things and extended things, and where the thinking governs the extended, then what do you begin to see? You begin to see the history of civilizing projects, and you begin to see the history of management and labor. So Cartesian thought in that sense of separating out, which is different from distinctions. So Marx makes distinctions all the time. Uh, and they are dialectical distinctions because they are always shaping each moment that is being distinguished and broken apart and then put back together. 
The Cartesian approach splits, uh, splits apart reality and then seeks to reorganize reality. And in this sense, we see in the 17th century the formation of civilization and savagery. If you go back and read um, English political thinking of that time, you will, especially, but not only in relation to Ireland, and from Ireland, they learn how to do horrendous things to the rest of the world, uh, that you have that civilization and savagery, which means that these were not simply ideas floating in the ether. And for some strange reason, this is what the eco-socialists um, ignore, that these were the ruling ideas, to use Marx and Engels' terms, the ruling ideas, civilization and savagery, civilization and savagery. In the 20th century, it became development and undevelopment under Truman's point four foreign policy. And this was so, this is so fundamental to what I'm saying, and everybody always ignores it, that nature and society in this sense, or civilization and savagery, became not just ruling ideas, but ruling abstractions. And these real abstractions that, that ruled over people's lives, that shaped reality. And one of the favorite examples of mine that Raj Patel and I use in A History of the World in Seven Chief Things is the English expression beyond the pale. And the pale was the actual colonial line that the English built in their invasion and ethnic cleansing and ruthless subordination of Ireland after 1541. And the, the Oxford English Dictionary de, strenuously denies that this is true. But I've gone back and looked at texts from this era. And uh, in this case, the OED is absolutely wrong and reveals their Englishness in, in the process. But so these this this whole critique that I have of nature and society is emphatically not that they don't exist. They absolutely do exist. And they are instruments in the class struggle from above. And if we pause for a moment and we think about just over the past 60, 70 years of human history, we think of struggles of ethnic and racial minorities, of women, of gay and trans activists. How do they call their struggles? Civil rights struggles, because they were excluded from this real abstraction embedded in, of course, a legal infrastructure of civilization, of civil society. They wanted to get into civil society because they had been robbed of certain human rights. And this is fundamental to understanding this whole era, that, that nature was, as this ruling abstraction, was never just about the birds and the bees, the soils and the streams. It was about removing the humanity from women, Celts, Slavs, Africans, indigenous peoples, all, all of these peoples again and again and again. And for some reason, the eco-socialist critique of all of this has been absolutely silent. And instead, we have these weird mischaracterizations, like I see everything as the same. I'm not even sure how that's possible to see everything the same, but that's emphatically not what I'm saying, that these are distinguished moments, but it's how, how do the rulers draw mental categories and distinctions for us? And they do it in a Cartesian way. It's only now, I mean, I think I've just realized something that I hadn't realized already, although correct me if I'm wrong. You you uh, spend the central chapters of your book talking about Marxist um, or Marxist economics and use this distinction between um, capital choosing to value labor as opposed to perhaps feudalism choosing to value land um, or the productivity of land as opposed to the productivity of labor being the substance of value, I suppose. 
and I, for one, I wonder whether what you're saying there is in some ways an extension of the reproduction of that idea, or at least of like choosing to value one set of things or one form of economic activity and excluding a whole series of others. Um, but as an extension of that, I suppose, would you say then that there are significant portions of the Marxist left? Because what it seems has happened is um, there are lots of streams of, of forms of thinking on the left which see capitalism as a, to- a totality, um, maybe like a historic totality that just, just destroys everything external to it, perhaps. Do you think there is a strain of thought on the left that does that and forgets to recognize that sort of external, the constancy of that and of, and of an external? Does that make sense? Well, I think that there there's a dialectical and an undialectical way to see the external. And the undialectical way is captured, I think, in many streams of eco-socialist thought, which essentially represent, I think metabolic rift thinking is an example of this, represent limits to growth thinking from the early 1970s with a Marxist patina, where uh, the, the ecological, the web of life is essentially powerless to induce a fundamental epical contradiction of capitalism. So in the and Bellamy Foster is quite upfront about this. Capitalism will continue until the last, last tree is cut, uh, unless and until there's a revolutionary movement. Now, some of us might say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, here's the thing, that we are in the midst of, in my opinion, an epical transition from a capitalist world ecology to what Samira Amin, the, the, the great anti-imperialist world historical thinker, would call a tributary mode of production. He would he called these kinds of transitions a decadent transition as opposed to a revolutionary transition from above. And it looks fairly clear that there are two uh, more or less coherent, more or less ramshackle schemes, one of which coming is coming from Beijing, another from some combination of Washington, D.C. in alliance with Davos uh, for a post-capitalist transition that will seek to address the climate crisis. So uh, the history, again, geohistory matters. The history of feudalism is instructive in this, that essentially at the end of uh, feudalism in the 15th century, you have certain elements of uh, late medieval ruling classes that align with bankers and project military power through a military revolution outwards to establish a new mode of production uh, so that there was some continuity in the family, family wealth, um, royal families, etc., into the new era, but a different mode of production obtaining. So that would be what Samir Amin calls a decadent transition. Uh, I fear, Dan, I'm losing track of some important elements of what you've just laid out. So can that's one moment of, of why it's important to understand that Um, capitalism is not just this kind of economic steamroller. It's it's externalization, let's say, of the unpaid work of the web of life as a whole, of of women's unpaid work, from a dialectical perspective, is also an internalization of their work. And I think if my own arguments have any traction uh, and any contribution beyond the the pioneering uh, contributions of, say, Marxist feminists and uh, dialectical Marxists of various stripes. It's to point out that geohistorical relation that the externalizing is never just externalizing; it's also internalizing. And as I've argued recently in relation to waste and toxification, that as the uh, uh, as the whole world has become a sacrifice zone, 
capital through imperial force is uh, redoubling its imperial tendency to lay waste. That for every moment of pollution and waste, there is a correspondingly larger moment of counter-revolutionary violence, of imperialist violence. And what we're seeing now is, as the whole world has been turned into a sacrifice zone, is the internalization of what was previously external. And the developing of the proletarian contradiction through that, which is not only one of obvious class struggle, but also the creation of disposable populations, of disposable peoples and places that is um, that Marx foresaw, for instance, in the working day, uh, but has been carried out, carried further by people like Melissa Wright in writing about the disposable worker. Yeah, I think that um, that is quite an instructive answer in the, the idea of holding the concept of externality and internality as a dialectical one or there being a dialectical approach to that question one of uh the sort of like quite informative influences on our podcast has been interacting with the sort of robert brenner aspect to right. the concept of the transition debate um more so through the work of reading ellen meeks's word and reading your book and some other things as well engaging a little bit of world systems theory a sort of not what led us to want to challenge the things that we like about Brennerism per se, but to sort of look for a synthesis between the two. And so I'm sort of wondering whether you see any value in the work of Robert Brenner or, I mean, uh, the, 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 the point that I wrote down was this idea of like, what really attracted me to that was this idea of the emergence of capitalist social relations under particular circumstances of class struggle in England in a particular phase of time. I guess the simple question is: Robert Brenner wrong to focus on that moment in time? Um, no, in fact, in fact, Bob Brenner, who I regard as one of the greatest Marxist thinkers of the past uh, fifty years, uh, Bob Brenner uh, and Emmanuel Wallerstein both agree on two major points: that the long sixteenth century witnesses the emergence of capitalist social relations, and uh, that uh, capitalism emerges through political action. So the epithet that Guy Bois hurls against uh, um, Bob Brenner in the first iteration of the Brenner debate, that, that he's a political Marxist, was then embraced by, uh, by Wood. Uh, and we can leave that for later. Uh, but if we, if we take that at face value, and I've argued this many times, that, my, uh, that, that Wallerstein's approach is political Marxism just as much as Bob Brenner. Now, they disagree over the unit of analysis. And that's not a, a trifling thing. So I would be the so and by the Bob Brenner that is really useful, I mean the past and present contributions. The New Left Review piece that the most proper Marxists read is rubbish, is full of, of out and out mischaracterizations of Wallerstein's position, uh, closer to the mark with people like Andre Gunder Frank, who never characterized himself as a Marxist, by the way. And so there and, conf and ends up conflating two very, very different streams of thought, dependencia and world systems analysis, uh, world systems analysis and Marx in Wallerstein's hands is the outgrowth of uh, uh, Luxembourg, Fanon and anti-imperialist Marxism is, in his words, a, uh, uh, an anti-imperialist critique of the worldwide class struggle. That's uh, so that's how Wallerstein was conceptualizing it. Uh, the the uh, not Brenner. Well, I don't know about. I mean, there's been a lot of, of fog and and smoke that I think has uh, been unnecessary. That people never read Wallerstein, uh, and they barely read Brenner either. And Ellen Mikesons Wood 
what an amazing political theorist, the separation of the, the economic and the political, the critique uh, offered in the retreat from class. But come on, let's not take her seriously as, as any kind of historical uh, analyst. That's, that's just, there, there's no basis for that. Um, so uh, I see this again as, uh, in a way, if we want to correspond this to real world developments within the worldwide revolutionary left, it's between Trotskyism and Maoism. And those are easily caricatured. The, the Trotskyist position was always strongest in relation to shop floor and rank and file working class struggles in the global north. The Maoist position was always strongest in the semi-proletarian, semi-peasant uh, revolutionary struggles of, of the global south. And of course, I'm not meaning to reduce the whole of, of everything to those two tendencies. Um, but that's uh, if you wanted to be very crude and simplistic, that's Wallerstein and Brenner in the 1970s. My view is that these are two halves of the of the amulet and that, yes, of course, you need that kind of class struggle shop floor uh, emphasis uh, that's now been taken up by people like Andreas Malm and Matt Huber. Uh, and you need a uh, critique of imperialism in the worldwide class struggle. And those are two perfectly compatible positions. Now, at the end of the day, specifically in relation to Brenner, um, first of all, Brenner comes off his insistence that it all begins in England. And he says, well, it turns out it all begins in the low countries. <laughs> and then he has this very elaborate answer for why, um, in fact, that it was contained within the low countries. And then later you have this English industrial revolution. It's a very, very thin read and an unconvincing read, in my view that uh, even Eric Hobsbawm early on in the 1950s said, you, you have to look at the North Sea as a unified home market. And anyone who's dug into the economic and environmental history of the early modern North Sea understands that, understands its imperialist relations, not just with the sugar plantations of the West Indies, but also with the timber, grain, and naval stores sectors and frontiers of Eastern Europe to uh, propel a certain form of robust proletarianization, financialization, and uh, manufacturing development that moves and fits and starts. And then when we get to the Industrial Revolution, let's remember, and this is something Malm is 100% silent on, that the key machine of the Industrial Revolution, I'm sorry, is not the steam machine, steam engine. It is the cotton gin and the reinvention of slavery and the, the dispossessions and enclosure of cotton frontier lands in the antebellum American South. That makes possible large-scale industry, which was, by the way, Marx's position, and Marx wasn't always right, but he's been amply verified by a robust and diverse economic historiography on this question, that, that the steam engine, yes, Malm is correct, that it takes over in places like Manchester out of the labor unrest of, of the mill towns. There's no question that uh, that's correct, uh, but it also takes over when a critical mass of cotton cheap cotton, whose price falls by about 80 to 90 percent over the first three decades of the 19th century, flows into Manchester. And oh, by the way, where does all the capital formation for Manchester industry come from? Maybe not all of it, but a critical increment of it comes from the West Indian planter families and those families um, involved in the slave trade over this previous 50-year period. So we have to put, this is, this is the point about Brenner, that Brenner's not wrong about key elements in the transition to capitalism in England. It's just not contained within England. And that's a, that's a methodological nationalist perspective that's just un, unsustainable.
So you have to put Wallerstein and Brenner together is a, is a, a way of putting it. Also, all these people who say Brenner is a class struggle theorist, uh, I don't know which Brenner they're reading, but this is overwhelmingly a story of um, sort of class struggle in the more ontological sense. And in fact, if you read Wallerstein, which most people don't, you read those uh, uh, latter chapters of, of the modern world system one, and it is all about the class struggle and state formation in uh, Western Europe and Eastern Europe for that matter. I guess a final question then um, for me perhaps is, I guess a kind of like what happens next? You've sort of suggested that crisis ecological crisis is an opportunity for social change. And I suppose um, my question was going to be to what extent nature might be part of a process of co-producing socialism or communism. Um, Do you have anything to say to that? Well, I would say not nature, not ecological. It might sound nitpicky, but what I would say is that all the vectors of capitalist crisis contain a web of life moment to them. So let me give you a a perfect example of this, that Marx says famously, the accumulation of capital is the multiplication of the proletariat. In fact, one of the ways to read capital and to read historical materialism is as a kind of socialist demography of capitalism in the light of proletarianization and commodification. So what's happening to that? Well, as Shona Swan and her colleagues uh, demonstrate in the book Countdown, we are now headed towards an absolute fertility crisis where the median sperm count of men in the advanced capitalist world will be zero by 2050, owing to this degradation of diet, endocrine disruptors, plastics, pesticides, herbicides. We are also in the midst of what I've called the great stagnation. That is the stagnation of labor productivity growth. Let's remember that in the 1970s, we were told by figures like Alvin Toffler, Marxists like uh, Ernest Mandel, that a new scientific technological revolution uh, was on the horizon. It would bring the robot factory uh, um, into existence and there would be a new phase of capitalist development accordingly. Instead of the robot factory, we got the global sweatshop and the gig economy, which is another form of the global sweatshop, informalization, the precariat, all of our conceptual language speaks to the fundamental crisis of proletarianization as a means of capital staying afloat. So it's trying to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic, meanwhile trying to reconstruct a new boat, a lifeboat earth, to uh, paraphrase uh, Garrett Hardin, uh, to uh, sustain the the 1% or the 10% or 15% while letting everyone tread water. So there's been a crisis, a great stagnation of labor productivity growth over the past 50 years. It's widely recognized uh, um, in new works on automation. You think of Aaron Bananov's work or Jason Smith's work, but also very mainstream economists like uh, uh, Robert Gordon's book on on the crisis of productivity. There's a long-term labor productivity stagnation that capitalism has not been able to uh, uh, restructure its way out of. Uh, This is also evident in, well, now we're back to the Brenner argument. So Robert Brenner's genius is is to say very, very clearly that you have to have an agricultural revolution to drive capitalism. That agricultural revolution uh, compels uh, competitive behavior that, that ends up producing more and more food with less and less labor power. That model is now dead in the water for a lot of reasons but at the center is climate change. And what we're seeing already 
according to Ortiz Bobea and her colleagues in the journal Nature Climate Change from 2021, is fully seven years of lost productivity growth in the big four cereal crops as a result specifically of climate change. And as I've, I've discussed in Web of Life and many other texts, there are many other political, agroecological, toxic chemical vectors that play into this. But essentially, the long era of agricultural revolution and the mountains of cheap food that resulted is over. So that's another fundamental moment of the Great Stagnation. And then finally, I follow people like Michael Roberts and many others to uh, uh, Marxist economists that identify a long-term a collapse of investment, especially in the advanced capitalist world, and a truly unprecedented overaccumulation crisis, such that we have, according to Bloomberg News, $19 trillion in government securities sitting there at negative or zero rate of return. So we have uh, all of these dynamics that cannot be resolved. And why can they not be resolved? Because of the enclosure of frontiers of cheap nature. So there no longer is there a sufficient mass of cheap labor, food, energy, and raw materials that can be drawn into the system that would essentially jumpstart a new era of capital accumulation that would open up new profitable investment outlets for all of this capital that's sitting in government securities or Manhattan real estate or ghost projects around the world. So we're in this moment of stagnation. What's wh Now, what happens in moments of stagnation? Well, in this sense, I think we can go back to the pre-World War I reality, that there, the wars of redivision begin to commence. I think that's what we're seeing in Ukraine. However, one lands on that, I think that it is a war over Belton Road. I think it is a war over whose vision will begin to dominate the post-capitalist world in one or more tributary systems. So uh, those are all elements of an epical crisis that, along with the climate destabilization, suggests that we are in a revolutionary moment. Now, the outcome of a revolutionary moment might be a decadent, again, to use uh, a Samir Amin's language of a, a revolution from above, a decadent transition, or it might be a revolution from below. And... In a moment like this, I think that that ideas, to, again, to quote Marx, I, I, I don't normally quote Marx so much, but again, to quote Marx, in such a moment, ideas become a material force, when, that, that we need to have a connective and dialectical imagination. And even if we say, oh, all this stuff about dialectics, that's too much, think a connective and relational and curious imagination uh, about the world around us and to be always be looking for what's not there in our thinking. And so I worry very much about a kind of eco-socialist imaginary that decides, or a degrowth imaginary that decides, well, we have the answer to the problem. And I don't think the problem is, is growth. I don't think the problem is pipelines. I don't think the problem is fossil fuels. I think the problem is imperial and capitalist class power. I think the solution to that is people's power, the, the power of the, of the global, of the, what I call the planetary proletariat. Not just the proletariat, but the semi-proletariat, the precariat, the femitariat, the biotariat, uh, a sense of the associated producers and reproducers of planetary life. The question becomes, how do we forge solidarities of struggle between paid and unpaid work uh, that address questions of, dom of the relation of domination and exploitation, for instance, around sexism 
and racism and that grapples seriously with internationalism in an era when climate, the climate crisis and the ruling elites are feeding climate nationalism and climate border walls. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I mean, it leads us to, yeah, it, as you say, a moment of uh, pure transition, which is exciting, but it's also incredibly stressful. <laughs> I mean, I think we have to cease to be afraid of the breakdown of the system. And part of that means we have to stop using this existential threat doomist language. That language has always been a friend of the authoritarian right. I, yeah, I think that that's something that Dan and I could probably take under advisement because we've been known to be climate doomers. Um, and I think that you're absolutely right to say that this is actually a time to really explain why these things are happening and not just make it seem like this unsurmountable barrier where life is going to be laid waste to, but actually here are the reasons that it's happening. Well, I think doom, doom feeds off of a sense that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. It feeds into a sense of the resilience of capitalism. And radicals are the biggest believers. I'm, after giving talks to hundreds of audiences over the past decade and more, I'm convinced radicals believe in capitalism's resilience more than any other group except for maybe maybe a few economists or something. But they really, really believe. And what I'd say is, uh, because my own work grew out of a long-run dialogue over the limits to growth problem, where the limit was always outside in the limits to growth model. And so I wanted to see if we're Marxists, the limits have to be outside, inside, and in between at all moments. That's the kind of thinking that we need. And so if we understand that what is happening with the climate and biodiversity, but especially with the climate, is bad for capital and is, in fact, destabilizing some of the fundamental elements of capitalist success, at the same time as the frontiers of cheap nature outside of capitalism have been enclosed, then essentially what we're seeing is this moment where the old fixes no longer obtain. Like what happened to all the magic technology? Like David Graeber asked, what happens to the flying cars? Well, what happened to the carbon removal technology? Remember Branson? Well, I'm going to give $25 million to the person who comes up with a scalable carbon removal uh, technology. This is a sign of the bankruptcy of capitalism. And that I think should give us hope. I like imagining that that's how much uh, carbon removal technology is worth. <laughs> I know exactly. Why isn't there an all out drive? Why isn't there a, you know, an $800 billion project uh, to fund carbon removal technology, which would, would help capital immeasurably, right? It would, it would help immeasurably. And yet, I think it's a sign of the technological exhaustion of capitalism. I wrote about this in a recent essay on there's no such thing as a technological accident. Apparently, in late stage capitalism, there are no more epoch making technologies. There might be from a different mode of production standpoint, from a tributary or a socialist mode of production standpoint but not from a capitalist one. Yeah, this is something that we actually found kind of interesting in Malm's Fossil Capital when we read it for the show was he gets in at the end to talking about, well, maybe the most realistic outcome is that states get together and they just say, okay, we're going to start spraying something in the atmosphere that reflects, uh, you know, um, energy back into space. And it winds up being this huge disaster because it actually affects weather patterns and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it raised some interesting questions for us, at least, about the ability of the capitalist class to meaningfully coordinate their activities. And it just doesn't seem like they can, at least in the face of the climate crisis. And it feels like this is almost like the great leveler when there are obviously like these things between, you know, 
the core countries, so to speak, and the peripheral countries where maybe the core countries proletariat class would have more of an interest in maintaining the current system than peripheral uh, proletariat classes. But at the end of the day, everybody's there are tornadoes in um, in Los Angeles. There is mass flooding everywhere, and everybody's going to be affected. So, well, in in a moment of of the whole world is an austerity zone. The whole world is a sacrifice zone. So we're 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 reminded of this. It's not that the old breakdowns of power are uh, uh, not enduring; they are. But that in a moment of ethical transition, there's no escape from it. Malma's right. Let's take the next step and identify that, that there's a technological exhaustion at the heart of the capitalist mode of production because the technologies relied on frontiers of cheap nature. That's simplistic. But look at mom's steam. I mean, it's not mom's steam engine, but the steam engine. Steam engine was a, was a vertical frontier technology. It was developed at the pithead of mines where the, the coal was cheapest and then efficiencies could be realized um, uh, out of that process. But today there are no more frontiers of cheap nature in the ways that that has obtained over the past five centuries. Plus, we have climate crisis, which is essentially the the enclosure of the atmospheric commons, and then the intensification, the nonlinear amplification of those contradictions into the climate system. So that, that should give us hope, even in a moment of recognizing that the end of capitalism will signal catastrophes. Let's also recognize that in moments of unfavorable climate change and civilizational crisis, there have often been very positive outcomes, as we saw with the crisis of Rome, with the crisis of feudalism. There are possibilities. Cool. Well, the last question for me is a short one. And Dan and I very much fall into the uh, uh, group of people that have not read Emanuel Wallerstein. So we're, we, I think we read one essay of his for the show and we kind of bumbled through it. What should we read? Well, you should read the Modern World System Volume One, oh. uh, which is a, a masterpiece. <laughs> but if you can't, if you can't stomach that, then read Historical Capitalism, which is a masterful uh, set of lectures. The original were three lectures published by Verso in 1983, and you'll be amazed to see how he deals with the problems of racism, sexism, class, imperialism, and, and even these questions of what I'm calling socially necessary unpaid work. And, and understand, Wallerstein was amongst those who understood that the normal condition of the proletariat is in fact the semi-proletariat, that the proletarian household relies strategically on unpaid work in order to reproduce itself so that capital's wage bill can be kept low. The one, the one thing I will leave your audience with is remember that Wallerstein was the one who brought Fanon's Wretched of the Earth from French into English translation. And that in this era of wokeness, where there's a tendency to separate out the question of colonialism from the worldwide class struggle, Fanon and Wallerstein help us see how these are intimately connected moments of the worldwide class struggle. This is not to say that there aren't critiques to be made. There are. Uh, but what we want to avoid is this kind of campism that says, well, I'm a metabolic rift guy. No, I'm a, I'm a uh, uh, world ecology guy. No, I'm this. I'm an eco-Leninist. It's, it's like, look, comrades, let's all get together and figure out where we actually disagree, because what the sectarianism does is it feeds this illusion that there are unbridgeable divides between parts of the left. And just if you think that, just go back to the history of the left and read the history and, and learn how destructive that sensibility has been. What we need is genuinely a revolutionary front of 
um, all manner of folks from world ecology, climate Leninism, metabolic rift. Um, I don't know, whatever the blowing, blowing up the pipeline people want to call themselves. Um, but let's have a generative dialogue. I'm, I'm, I've just been amazed at the unwillingness. I think this is how neoliberalism has made us antisocial is like, let's actually have a conversation. Uh, and, you know, like, come like, uh, you know, Andreas Mull, John Bellamy Foster, whomever, you know, Kohei Saito, come and invite me and I will come and talk with you. Um, and I've invited them in various ways over the years and, you know, crickets. So let's see if we can begin on the left to build out an actual dialogue where we can outline our political differences without trying to read people out of the movement, without calling them, I'm sorry, Bellamy Foster, calling people enemies of socialism is just unethical and uncomradely and anti-revolutionary um, in this case. Uh, you know, this is, uh, uh, you know, this is not somebody working for the CIA. This is somebody for, with whom you have political differences. We can have political differences. That's allowed. If we want to build a revolutionary socialist movement, then we need to admit differences into our conversation. Yeah, I think we would very much echo that uh, that call. Um, well, well, thank you. Yeah, and thank you again. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This is hugely enlightening. And um, yeah, let's hope some more people engage with metabolic shift and the ideas behind... Um, behind your thinking because i know metabolic it's been... rift gift shift <laughs> metabolic, metabolic gift. churn yeah wow. okay <laughs> and those are those are terms uh, all shared with uh, keel mo at harvard and neil brenner at chicago now and yeah i mean there's an ongoing experimentation that we can have this is what i tell my comrades and students it's like take the ideas play with them refashion them that's what we need if we want a socialist imaginary that is capable, not just of waging the struggle, but seizing power in order to affect a climate justice transition, then we're going to need to work with people with whom we disagree. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just looking throughout history, that's the way any even semi-successful socialist revolution has happened, has, has come about. So Absolutely. Well, thank you. Yeah, and thank it's you again for coming on the show. And everybody, uh, you can find him, I believe, on Twitter. Are you Oikios on Twitter? I'm, I'm on Twitter. You can search for Jason W. Moy or Oikios. Uh, you can go to my website, jasonwmoore.com. You can find my contact information if you want to bug me about something. Especially if you're John Bellamy Foster. <laughs> yes, John, email me. <laughs> The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time. Whoa.